Hey y'all, are you surprised to hear me again in your podcast feed? It's been a 007 back with movie reviews, which I hope will be more regular now. It feels like it's time to shake the dust off this podcast as the pandemic vanishes into the rearview mirror, thank goodness, and we're back to going out for fun to the cinema every single week. And what a year of cinema it is. We have major summer tentpole movies. We have amazing art house releases. It feels like this is going to be a real banner year for cinema and perhaps a better year than next year because I suspect that all the strikes from the writers, directors and now actors is going to disrupt production and the release schedule for next year and perhaps into 2025. So let's strap in and enjoy the wide range of amazing cinema that's on offer. In this edition of the podcast, I'm going to talk about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. I'm then going to go to the other end of the cinema spectrum with a review of an amazing small budget British film called Pretty Red Dress, and then round out with a rather delayed review of Asteroid City, which I only just caught up with because when it came out on release, I was very luckily in Portugal um, on holiday. And then in the next edition of this podcast, I am going to review the two big releases of this week, Barbie and Oppenheimer. Okay, so let's get into Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which I truly believe is a five-star movie. And I think that Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie, the director of the last couple of these films, are really underrated when it comes to having kind of reinvented and pushed forward the action genre. I feel that these films had a sort of strange start. We had Brian De Palma directing the first ever Mission Impossible film back in the mid-1990s. And it really was a beautifully shot, very atmospheric Cold War thriller, um, very sophisticated, very adult. And then we had that awful misstep of the John Woo Mission Impossible 2 that was kind of like an Asian action film, just very overdone, very self-conscious. Um, by far the weakest film in terms of characterization with the awful Naya Nordor fall as the damsel in distress love interest really set back the franchise. And honestly, I hadn't watched any of the films since then. And I really just caught up with them all in advance of watching this latest installment. And it's amazing to see how J.J. Abrams reinvented Mission Impossible in MI3 and gave us the elements that we love today. The fact that, yes, there's an action hero, much like James Bond or Jason Bourne, but it's really about teamwork and the complementarity of a really diverse team. That you have the IT coder hero that is Luther Stickle, um, and how rare to see an older black man in the IT coder role. And then you have Simon Pegg as Benji, who's again an IT nerd turned guy out in the field, who's giving us that sort of nervous British humour. And you have, most importantly, a succession of really badass, kick-ass women, um, really a global set of women in the franchises who are not damsels in distress. They are very capable of taking care of themselves and they are equals to Tom Cruise's hero, Ethan Hunt. And in the latter few films, that role has been taken by Rebecca Ferguson as the ex-MI6 agent Ilsa Faust. I think there's a beautiful way in which these films combine incredibly glamorous locations, really stunningly choreographed action, and Tom Cruise doing many of his own stunts that absolutely anchors you in reality. There is just something that we notice in a world of CGI effects, that when we see the actual face of the actor, 
driving a motorcycle off the Austrian Alps and sort of free gliding onto the roof of the Orient Express. And we see the kind of G-force rippling through Tom Cruise's face. It just anchors us in the suspense, the tension, the peril of that moment and keeps us on the edge of our seat. So when it comes to action, I think these films are way beyond James Bond, Bourne, the Fast franchise. They're just taking it to a level that reflects Tom Cruise's own gonzo attitude towards doing stunts. But what really makes these films great, and yes, I did use the word great, is that they are anchored in real emotion and real stakes born of relationships that have built up and been layered over now seven films. And that anchors us in character. And the fact that we really feel that Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt loves his teammates, that they're more than teammates. They are his found family. And likewise, that for Luther Stickle, Ving Rhames, for Benji, for Rebecca Ferguson, these are deep-rooted relationships. So that when these people are in peril and are trying to save the world and each other, we get the stakes. It isn't just another Bond movie with a ticking time bomb, although often we have those too. We care because we want these people to survive. And even more importantly, not only do we believe in their relationships, we believe in the cause for which they're fighting. There is a profound moral sense to these films, and that is nowhere more evident than in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. So the big bad in this film is not a nuclear bomb, as is typically the case, but it's actually generative AI. And isn't it amazing that however many years ago, four years ago, when Chris McQuarrie was writing the script, that he would line up by accident in the forces of the universe. The release of his film, a few months after the release of ChatGPT4, when the average person in the street understands something of the awesome power of AI. So it's perfectly timed. And as in 2001 Space Odyssey and many other films, the big bad is AI that has become sentient. And we don't actually know its intentions yet. We know that it has it has infiltrated the defense and intelligence systems of many of the major countries around the world. We don't quite know its intent. We do, however, know that the US government, among many others, is trying to control the AI and in doing so become the world's next superpower. What's fascinating is, therefore, that the IMF, the Impossible Mission Force, is the only set of people who are actually trying to destroy the entity rather than control it and to save humanity from its own hubris. It's a brilliant idea and it's very of the moment and it has real ethical, moral questions at its heart. And they are questions that we as humans watching this film should be asking ourselves right now. So fantastic stunts. Glamorous locations everywhere from Rome to Venice to the Orient Express. I mean, this film looks beautiful. Um, Real friendships at the heart of it and interesting moral questions. And finally, I would say a fantastic sense of humour. I think when Mission Impossible works at at its best, you get that wonderful humour of colleagues who've worked together, who banter off each other. There's a brilliant point very early on in the film where Luther and Benji are arguing over who's the best coder, which is quite fun. There are meta jokes. You know, there's a brilliant car chase in Italy, in Rome, that uses a Fiat. And there's a there's a kind of sub joke that that's the safe car you get, not a supercar. And obviously it's riffing off the Italian job. Um, the whole thing is just really, really knowing. And that carries on into the way in which the script layers our references and our knowledge of the previous films. 
I love the fact that Vanessa Kirby channels Vanessa Redgrave from Mission Impossible 1 as her daughter, the arms broker, Alana. I love having Harry uh, Cherney back as Kitteridge, the CIA or IMF handler back from Mission Impossible 1. It just brings such depth to the franchise, I feel. And it is interesting that when they shoot his character in particular, they give you the odd off angles that Brian De Palma used in that film. So there are real kind of visual and stylistic callbacks to the, the heritage of the franchise at this point. Um, and I even feel you could argue that the the real new character, which is Haley Atwell's Grace, who is a, a thief who's drawn into the, the gang of the IMF, that she's really the sort of reinvention and remodeling of Naya Nordorfall, who was back in Mission Impossible 2, but this time with a lot more spunk, a lot more kind of originality about her and a really great relationship with Ethan Hunt, um, played by Tom Cruise. So honestly, I cannot think of more fun to be had at the cinema it's a long film it's just under two and a half hours but it absolutely flew by and I could easily have sat down and watched the second part of the film straight away and I just want to really give a shout out to a franchise that casts um, older women (laughs) and doesn't put them in bikinis like James Bond films unless they are genuinely training underwater holding their breath like Rebecca Ferguson in one of the prior films And I want to give a shout out to a film franchise that really gives us nuanced characters, even in the smaller roles. And this, I think, in the current film is perfectly encapsulated in the character of Paris, played by Pom Clementiev, who will be recognisable to you if you've watched the Marvel films. In a Bond film, I feel this character would have just been a kind of funkily dressed, sort of caricature evil henchwoman. But in this film, her character is given growth and nuance and, dare I say it, dignity. So while she starts off as a sort of crazed, cool biker chick driving around in a massive, you know, Humvee in the centre of Rome, by the end, you really have a sense of the character and her journey. And that is not something that is done in most action films. So I really want to, you know, give a lot of praise to Mission Impossible. And I also want to encourage you, if you can, to go see this film in the best cinema you can possibly find, ideally on an IMAX screen, somewhere with a really good sound system, so that you really truly feel every explosion and every train carriage that's plummeting over a bridge. You know, you want to feel the excitement of that and really appreciate the cinematography as well. These are beautiful, beautiful locations beautifully shot there's one particular short um, section that's all in the desert and it's it's really beautiful it's like something out of dune so five star review from me (laughs) go see it Um, it is rated 12a in the uk and pg-13 in the usa 163 minute runtime but absolutely breezes by okay so if mission impossible was the big tentpole release last weekend Um, Let's talk about a couple of art house releases that are still in cinemas and available to watch. The first is a really small, low budget British film called Pretty Red Dress, which is the directorial debut of Dion Edwards and is set in contemporary South London. And it's so wonderful to see real contemporary South London on screen. It's really a drama that is a three-hander between Natey Jones, who plays as Travis, He's a South London DJ just released from prison and he returns home to his family. His wife, Candace, is played by Alexandra Burke, who you'll know from reality TV and Western musical fame. 
Um, she welcomes him, him home. They seem to have a good marriage. They're, they're very sex positive. And she's on the verge of getting a really big break in musical theatre playing Tina Turner. The drama kind of begins when we realise that Travis has bought his wife Candice this pretty red dress of the title so that she can play Tina Turner. And that he has an attraction to it, a fetishistic attraction to it, maybe, that somehow this dress is a catalyst for his very deeply repressed self to start expressing itself. And the film is about the consequences of him playing with that side of his sexuality and his gender. And we have two moments, one when his daughter, teenage daughter Kanisha, played by Temalola Olatun Bosun, her amazing debut performance, catches her father. And another when Alexandra Burke catches her husband. And in both cases, this guy, and he's a good guy, but he's so filled with shame and internalized homophobia and maybe a toxic masculinity concept of what a man and a father and a husband truly is that he cannot admit it. He is so filled with shame. He has to play it off as a kind of, hey, I was smoking, I was high and I was just playing around. It's just a joke. I was just messing. But as the film goes on, we realize that it's more than that. And it's about how this family, this trio are going to cope with, accept potentially um, what's going on. And what I love about the film is it doesn't shy away from the painful emotions of that and the challenge that it brings to the daughter in school, also dealing with her own sexuality and the wife dealing with her conceptions of what a marriage is, what a husband is. Um, there's a really interesting conversation around boundaries and what for her are acceptable types of, of play and what isn't. And I think there's very few films that are really looking at this holistically. So you often get films now and it's fantastic to get that representation looking at the trans experience, but you rarely get to see the whole family shown um, holistically. I did find maybe the ending a little bit trite and convenient, but overall, I thought this was a really impressive first drama. And I will be closely watching what the director Dion Edwards does next, as well as all of the cast. It really is so impressive to see such a short performances and such a short storytelling of quite a complicated story in a first time feature. So kudos to everyone involved in Pretty Red Dress. And the final film to discuss this week, Psy, is Wes Anderson's Asteroid City that played the Cannes Film Festival earlier this year and was actually released last month. Um, so it's been out for a while. And I say sigh because I was dreading this being the case, and it was. I used to be such a big Wes Anderson fan. I loved the Royal Tenenbaums and Bottle Rocket and Moonrise Kingdom. And, you know, I have a massive poster of the Grand Budapest Hotel on the wall in my house. But it just feels that he peaked somewhere around Grand Budapest Hotel and that he's been offering diminishing returns ever since. Um, I didn't find Asteroid City quite as pointless as The French Dispatch, which was perhaps the most disappointing film I saw last year, or was it the year before at the London Film Festival? But this film, it looks beautiful. It's Wes Anderson. The, the production design, the art direction, the way the characters look, the way it's shot, it's beautiful. But Wes Anderson is at risk, serious risk of self-parody at this point. And it's not surprising to me that you can get a Wes Anderson filter for your Instagram and Wes Anderson, accidentally Wes Anderson books, because it's such a style. And if it isn't 
aligned to deeper meaning and emotion. As I said in Mission Impossible 7, you can have all the stunts in the world. But if we don't feel for the characters, if we're not invested in the story, then what on earth is the point? And I just feel like saying, halt, enough. Like all this useless beauty is not making me feel anymore. And maybe the problem is, is that a lot of the story elements in this film are recycled, I suppose, if you want to be generous, from other Wes Anderson films. So Asteroid City is set in the desert. Um, It's in a small town that apparently had an asteroid hit it. And they have an army base there and a scientific research base there. And every year, a bunch of young uh, wannabe scientists and astrologers, young teenagers, gather together in this city and are given awards and get to gaze up at the stars. And an alien intervenes. (laughs) And so they're all trapped there into quarantine. And we have to sort of get into what's going on in their lives. I mean, it, yeah, fine. And then it all ends. There are two kind of main emotional stories, I guess, in this film. One is First Love from two of these junior stargazers. And yes, it's rather sweet, but we've seen this in Moonrise Kingdom. We've seen it in the Royal Tenenbaums. We've seen it so many times in Wes Anderson's films. And I just don't think it's done better here. I don't think it's done differently enough. And think of the young romance story in the Grand Budapest Hotel and the extreme peril that was surrounding that story and the stakes of it. There's none of that here. And then the second sort of big emotional story, I guess, is the kind of tentative relationship slash romance between Scarlett Johansson's Midge, who's a film star in the kind of Elizabeth Taylor style, and between Jason Schwartzman's war photographer. He's a widower. He is mourning the death of his wife. He doesn't quite know how to tell his children who are with him in Asteroid City. And he calls in his father-in-law, who's a larger-than-life character played by Tom Hanks, to come and help him. Where does that story come from, I hear you cry? Well, it comes from the Royal Tenenbaums, right? Where Ben Stiller was the widower with the children and he couldn't cope and he was back at home and his larger-than-life father was Royal Tenenbaum of the title. And I just feel that this story is hackneyed. It's kind of like a paint-by-numbers, cut-and-paste of all the other films that Wes Anderson has made all mashed together. It looks gorgeous, it's quirky, it's whimsical, but it never approaches the mournful or comedic heights of the best of Anderson. And I feel it's just like watching someone who's spinning their wheels. I was so hopeful the profundity of Grand Budapest Hotel was going to signal a second stage of Wes Anderson's career where he would harness all his aesthetic sense and bring it to bear on more profound material. And it just hasn't happened. I'm so, so disappointed. To me, this is at best a two-star film just because it looks good. Um, But there is nothing there. There is just nothing there. So I'm very sad to say that Asteroid City, I mean, go watch it. It looks beautiful, right? But anyway, in information, it's rated PG-13. It has a running time of 105 minutes and it probably will be on a streaming service near you very, very shortly. So there you go. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Five stars all the way. Fantastic. Please see it in a cinema. Pretty Red Dress probably is still in cinemas. You can wait to watch that at home. It's not as madly cinematic, but it's still really worth watching. Great relationship drama. And Asteroid City, watch it for the Wes visuals. But frankly, you can just buy the inevitable Wes Anderson hardback book that has all the still frames in it, because that's what it is. It's a set of beautiful still frames. Anyway, I hope that's given you a little bit of uh, insight as what I watched last week. 
In the next edition of Bina Double's Seven Movie Reviews, I'll be talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer. In the meanwhile, whatever you're watching this week, I hope you really have fun. 